If I can invite your attention uh, to the Gospel of Matthew tonight, we'll come uh, right quick uh, to one of the scenes um, near unto the death of our Savior. You know that he went through an ordeal even before he got to the cross. You know that it began in the Garden of Gethsemane with a great conflict with the devil and his contemplation of sin and the wrath of God caused him to sweat great drops of blood. It's something that was totally foreign to us. And every contemplation, I think, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, is uh, somewhat um, repulsive to us. Uh, we, we don't find anything that is pleasant or attractive or admirable of its own nature when we contemplate the scenes um, leading up to his death and, and to Calvary itself. Sometimes um, we are, if you're like I am, okay, I'll just be transparent. I'm troubled sometimes. I'm disturbed sometimes. I, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about my Savior, my Lord, under such conditions. And sometimes I actually resist it. I actually turn from it. I, I don't like it. And yet I find that if I do that, that I, I am neglecting some of the sightings, some of the best sightings and views and perspectives of his love to me. If I won't look, if I'll turn away. R.C. Sproul says, um, uh, maybe he's somewhat famous for this by now, he has this monumental message on the curse motif that he preached at... Um, I don't know if it was together for the gospel or which which occasion it was, whether it was a pastor's conference, but it was it was stupendous because he opened up the fact that Christ was the greatest obscenity on the cross. He was the greatest obscenity in the universe because he was not only cursed because he hung on a cross or was hanged on a cross. He was. But according to Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. He wasn't only cursed, but He was the curse. He was the total embodiment of sinfulness and decadence and depravity for all of his people throughout every generation that has ever lived on the face of the earth and shall ever live. That was the figure. That was that person that was on the cross. And so when we think about this, let's, let's, let's cultivate. I, all, all I want to do is talk about one aspect tonight. I only want to talk about one thing that I've never heard any preaching on in my life, not to say that it hasn't been preached on and not to say that I'm the example of it and I set the standard for it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just intrigued by it and drawn to it because uh, God put it in my heart. 
So as we contemplate these sufferings, and on this specific occasion, and this specific procedure that was brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, that I have not heard done to anybody else, that's not a part of the regular format for crucifixion. Uh, maybe it is, but I've never heard of it. It's not anywhere else in, in the Bible. I want us to contemplate Christ being crowned with thorns. The crown of thorns that's found in Matthew 27. It's also found in Mark 15. It's also found in John 19. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 27, just this little section. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes, his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I just want to answer four questions tonight. What did it mean? What did it mean for those who made the crown and placed it on his head, those who allowed it and those who approved of it, what did that mean? What did that mean to them? What is signified by what they were doing? N number two, what did it mean for the one who wore it? What must have Jesus thought of it? What, did, what must have he contemplated while he wore it? A lesser point, but one at least worth mentioning. What does it, what does it symbolize uh, uh, for the whole created world, for the things that he had made? And then lastly, what does it mean for us? What, 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 what does it mean to us? So we find ourselves um, on, on, on the darkest day of human civilization. It was the darkest day, and yet at the same time, it was the brightest day. It, it was the most glorious day. At the, at, only a Christian can understand that. It was the darkest day because it was the day in which the creator and sustainer, the, that blameless one, was going to die. But it was also the day that the devil would utterly be defeated, and all of his people would have a sufficient sacrifice for their sins. Well, what does it mean then? What did it mean in the first place for those who had made it? What were they saying? What, what, what was that all about? Those that allowed it, those that approved of it. You notice that there's no difference of opinion here. There were a battalion, which I'm told is 600 soldiers. It's, it's, it's one-tenth of a legion. 600 soldiers. There's, there's, there's a unanimous opinion 
There's a unanimous purpose. There's no opposition for this at all. Let's make a crown of thorns. And even if all of them didn't know about it, they all approved of it. They were all... Do- what does that say? What does that say of them? You know what it says. You know how totally given over to sin they must have been. Totally abandoned to this devilish activity. What reason... What reason did they have to do such a thing? Don't think of the crown of thorns like a rose bush, okay? Some of us have the plant. There's at least two of us. Sarah Troutman gave me the plant that comes from the Middle East that supposedly is the plant from which the crown of thorns was made, the same variety of plant. It has thorns about this long on it. They can be shorter than that, but they're green, and they're really, really sharp, but the whole plant is flexible. You can bend it. You can cut it off. If if, if I had a piece, I'd show it to you. Think of thorns that are at least a half inch, if not an inch or an inch and a half long, very, very sharp, as sharp as a needle. Easily pierce you. Easily. They think that this is a good idea. How utterly cruel and unfeeling they must have been. Let's do this to a man that's going to be killed. Let's do it to a man who's already been scourged. Let's do it to a man who, who, who was less than Barabbas, who was not preferred, who they, they could have had him, but let's make it worse for him. Let's, let's put a crown of thorns on his head. They were like the people in, in, in Proverbs 2 where we, we all come from this lot. We're not just pointing our fingers at the soldiers or the governor or the crowd or anybody else. Proverbs 2.13 says that, that there are people who forsake the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. There is a category of mankind. It's, it's a huge category that gives no thought for what they do. They actually rejoice in doing what is evil and they delight even in the perverseness of it. Well, we're told, I've heard this before, I don't know whether it's true or not, that uh, Pilate supposedly scourged, had Jesus scourged, and allowed all of this abuse so that he could present him um, before the crowd. You can read about this in, in John chapter 19, and beginning with verse 15. Possibly he was looking for a way out because he knew that he was a righteous man. He knew there was no guilt in him. He knew that he was a just man. And so he allowed all of this to happen with the hope that they might let him go. But when he presented them to the crowd and, and, and uh, to the chief priests, not even his own testimony, not even the spectacle of this, this bruised and battered, banged up man would find any compassion, would find any relief. This was not the day of mercy. He needed no mercy. He had done nothing wrong, but it was not the day of leniency. It was not the day of, 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 of anything good happening 
from a human standpoint except what God was overruling by offering his son. Well, number two, what did it mean for Jesus then? What did it mean to him? You can think on this, but surely he had a deep sense of his being despised and rejected of men. Surely he felt that. Surely he thought, why? Why are they doing this to me? Why? But he uttered not a word. He didn't say, a, he didn't protest. He, he, he said nothing about it. He, he knew that, that, these, that these people were so deeply sinful, so given over, and, and if, if we can use the word, they were helplessly this way, yet entirely responsible for everything they did. And he, he shows within himself complete submission to what I would have to say is a, is a distinct irregularity. That, that the, the, whole, the whole situation is absurd that anything should be happening to him. But even in, in, in this detail, he, he, he is seamlessly obedient. He offers no protest. He says, he says nothing. You remember when Paul said, um, um, is, it, is, it, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen? You remember when he said that. Jesus could have said anything he wanted. All they were doing was unlawful, but he says nothing at all. Well, this morning, dear people, um, in, in our Isaiah class, in the kind providence of God, we, we uh, came across this passage which may have been, which I don't doubt, um, I believe Jesus uh, was a careful student of the Old Testament and, and that he knew all of the prophecies concerning himself. But this was, this was a passage in, in Isaiah chapter 52, right at the very end. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if, if you do, it's Isaiah 52, uh, verses 13 uh, through 15, just, just, uh, just three verses. There we read the image of the servant which Christ knew he was. He was the answer to, to all the urgent needs and all the needs to be ransomed and to be redeemed and to be set free and, and to be changed. I, Isaiah says, with the voice of God, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This verse doesn't seem to follow, but here it is. Uh, verse 14 says, And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The exegetical commentator, exegetical, just a nice fancy word for uh, giving us what the words really mean, giving their derivation, their context, what, what the, how it could be translated. Alec Marier says, uh, here's, here's what we have here concerning this servant. Something utterly shocking, shattering, appalling will be associated with him. 
this disfigurement, disfigurement from appearing to be long with mankind, so that men stepped back from horror, not only saying, Is this the servant? But is this human? That's what the text says. That's what Isaiah prophesied. That's what Jesus knew that he was going to undergo. He was going to bleed so much. He was going to be so beaten, so bruised, so abused, so harmed and hurt and pained that he might not even look like a human being. That he would not be recognized. That they wouldn't even know who he was. That's what Isaiah prophesied. I want to tell you something. When, when, when I was a boy, and it, this all comes home to me, because when I was a boy, we did foolish things. Boys are reckless. We do stupid things. We, we, we do dangerous things. We don't even think about it. I don't, I don't think girls do that, but we do. We went down to Lake Erie. Lake Erie was right down the street from, from where we lived in, 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 in uh, Euclid, Ohio. And b- believe it or not, we decided it would be a good idea if, if, if some guys got up. If, there's like cliffs there, too, that come down to the lake. If, if some guys got up in, in the roots and, 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 and threw anthracite. Anthracite is a, is, 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 is a real hard rock coal. It, it, there's bituminous and there's anthracite. Anthracite's like a rock, and, and, and it, it can be sharpened. We'll throw rocks at you guys down there that are on the beach. We take turns doing this. Well, my turn came to go down there, and we're just having a great... And the guys down there could throw rocks up at us, okay? It was fair. But you can see how stupid this is. I got hit in the head with, with, with a rock of anthracite, and it made the tiniest cut in my head, no wider than a little girl's fingernail, no wider than that. But it was, but it was a deep cut, and, and I thought nothing of it. And all the boys ran. You know, they, they all took off because they were going to, they would be, I, and I ran all the way home. But on the way home from this little tiny cut, there was blood all down the side of my face. And the cut was, was, was small. Not even a half inch, maybe not even a quarter of an inch. And so, what I think of the crown of thorns being pressed into my Savior's head, when I think of, of the kind of the length of those thorns and their cruelty, their unrestrained malice against my Savior, and they drove the crown into his head, that must in, in part have fulfilled this scripture. Because his face would have been covered with blood. He would have been bruised and battered and so hurt by all that was done. The the blood would be in his scalp. It would be all down his neck. It would be all over him. I had one little cut, and it was all down my face. There was a woman in in the front yard breaking leaves, and she went, (gasps) for just one little cut. My Savior had, had, as much as I loved that hymn, Five bleeding wounds he bears. Beautiful hymn. What what John Wesley or Charles Wesley wanted was to capture the the 
the main points, the five wounds, his hands, his feet, and his side, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, forgive, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. But I know that it was more than five bleeding wounds. I think it was more than 50. It might have been more than 500. We'll find out when we get to heaven, when, when we see this glorious Savior, and somehow the, the, the wounds that he received on Calvary will be gloriously represented in his physical body in, in a glorious and wonderful way. Well, that's uh, at least in part... That fulfilled, he, he knew that he was fulfilling Isaiah 52 and verses 13 through, 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 through 15. Well, very briefly then, what does it symbolize for the creative world? In, in a lesser sense, where do thorns come from? Why are there thorns anyway? They come from God's cursing the earth because of, of, of the sin of man. He says to Adam, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for, for, for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread for out of it till you return to the ground. For out of it you, you were taken and you are dust and to dust you will re- return. Well, in a, in a strange sense, the thorns around Jesus' forehead and scalp, are, they, they can symbolize this fallen world, this world of sin that he's taking to the cross with him. It, all the benefits that will ever come to the earth, in the renewed earth, they will come through Jesus Christ. All I'm saying is that thorns around the Creator's head means that he takes the burden, sins, of this world and this whole sinful cosmos that we live in, it, it is also with him. So in this utterly humiliating way, in, in a totally inappropriate way, this crown rests upon his head with what Pilate wanted written. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So there he is. And what does it mean then in the the last place? What does it mean for us? What does it mean to us? Well, here, here we have all that we need in Christ. We have the perfect obedience of that Savior. Whatever cruelty, whatever absurdity, whatever, however ridiculously wrong and not right and unjust, whatever happened to him, He patiently bore it. He never sinned. We have this Savior for ourselves. He purchased a crown of eternal life for us while he wore a crown that produced the shedding of his own blood that was symbolic of all of his humiliation. He was the king of the universe, and and he wears a crown of fallen humanity. It means also, dear people, and I want to do this too, okay? I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I don't want to do myself. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything 
that I don't need improvement either. I'm not talking down to anybody. This means there can be no boundaries. There can be no limits for us in what we will do for the Savior. Whatever we're asked to do, we're going to do it. How can you look at a Savior like that and say, no, no, I've got some stipulations. There's just some things that I'm just not willing to do. When it's clear, when it's a clear path for you that you're to give and to sacrifice and to pray and to witness and to be ready to do and ready to send, send your kids, whatever he wants you to do, you've got to say yes to the Savior. Let's not resist him. Let's not prefer our comforts. Let's not do that. Let's not live for anything else than Him. This is, this is the one who died for us. We, we can never say no. It also means that whatever happens to us, however absurd, incongruent, however something doesn't... We're not getting what ought to follow. We're not receiving what is, is, is even lawfully deserved. We're not getting the right response. We're getting the opposite. Or we're getting nothing at all. Or we're getting worse. The best remedy for that, the best remedy for that, is contemplation of your Savior. The best thing to do is bring Jesus there. Bring the cross there. Bring the crown of thorns there. Bring the scourge back there. Bring pierced hands and pierced feet and pierced side there. And, and, and you'll be okay with it. Some of, I think sometimes the absurd things and the difficult things that happen to us are meant specifically to drive us to Jesus Christ. That, that's the reason they've come. Because we've been wandering or we're not as close as we need to be. May, May that be our experience. Then lastly, Revelation 4.10 is, is a wonderful picture. It shows us in, in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, in the new heavens and in the new earth. And What are we doing? We're casting down our crowns. The crowns that he gives to us we're casting him down at the feet of, of the one who lived and died and rose and lives forever. That's our Savior. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we uh, go back to this uh, special table that you have ordained for us, we, we are your unworthy children. We have not thought of you. We have not served you. We have not obeyed you. We have not honored you as we ought to have. You know all about us. We are worse than we confess. But we thank you for your love to us, which uh, e eclipses and covers all our sins. Help us to have both a deeply contemplative time of your sufferings and a deeply celebratory time of your achievements. Because through all of this, through this crown of thorns, through this being nailed to the tree, 
to this giving up of your own spirit willingly, to this being able to say, it is finished. It was all for us. It was all for your people. And we're glad that this disfigured Savior, beyond human recognition, is going to sprinkle all the nations. We're glad he's doing that. We're glad for the great influx that will come from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on this earth. We're glad to be a part of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.